Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. Is there any interesting deep sea in the news, Al? One was about sea lice that live on seals and sea lions and walruses and stuff like that. We were talking a while ago about why do big air-breathing mammals suddenly decide to dive to very deep waters? And one of the ideas kicking around was maybe they do it to shed all their parasites, crush them all at depth, whatever, come back up again. But there's a group of scientists who have recently found that the sea lice are actually particularly hardy. They have the ability to survive to 2,000 metres, even though they live their entire life on seals and sea lions and walruses, which is kind of weird. But the bit I liked most about the story was there was one unfortunate little louse accidentally subjected to 44 megapascal pressure. That means that that little louse had been subjected to equivalent of 4,000 metres depth and it survived which is kind of interesting as to why sea lice have evolved such incredibly high pressure tolerance but I mean it knocks out any type of hypothesis regarding deep diving as a way of shedding these things because obviously that's not going to work because it sounds like the sea lice can go way deeper than the host. Quite what's going on there I don't know. So speaking of weird stuff and parasites, the other news story is about anglerfish and their immune system. So anyone who doesn't know, anglerfish are these big, weird-looking, pudding-shaped fish, famous for the big jaws and the teeth and the bioluminescent lure. But they have a really weird mating system worked out, whereby the big fish that swim around in the pelagics are mostly female, and the males are tiny. And the males come along and basically attach themselves to the side of the female, and the female eventually absorbs them. That's how they reproduce. So when you find a big female, you can see how many sexual partners she's had by the number of weird weird scars she's got on her body surfaces. A group of scientists are looking into this because it doesn't make any sense because your immune system should reject that. You're basically merging two animals. You're merging the male and the female. It's not a parasitic relationship as such. You're actually absorbing the other one. They found out that they actually lack key immune system genes that are needed to let antibodies mature and assemble receptors for immune cells and things like that. So it's, there's something really interesting going on there. The males are essentially free-swimming testicles with incredible senses of smell. A few of them, are, well, at least we think, they, they don't actually feed at all. Their whole life is about tracking down the female. I heard it didn't have a digestive system. I think it varies because it's... um. Yeah, there are hundreds of species of these things, eh? But then if you live in the midwater where the density of animals is so unbelievably low, I guess you need to do something pretty drastic to make sure. If that means absorbing your boyfriend, then so be it. <laughs> so anyway, so there you go. There's some interesting deep sea stories. One of the pieces of feedback was that we're pushing back against monsters and aliens and creatures, but... Uh, a few of our listeners pointed out that there are people who really engage with the deep sea purely because of that. You know, that's that's what they think is really cool, and that makes them advocates for the deep sea. So I'm starting to wonder: Are we getting this wrong? Are we coming at this from too much of an analytical, scientific angle? We need to look at the aesthetics of these animals and how people engage with them. There's one particular artist who will be our guest on the show today. Her name is Alexandra Gould, who I invited on a couple of expeditions, and I thought it was a really interesting thing to do from my perspective, regardless of what art she produced in the end. I thought she was a really interesting person to have on board because when we're at sea doing our thing, we often bring journalists and various other people, but they tend to ask similar questions. What I loved about Alex was when she was on board, you had absolutely no idea what question was about to come out of her mouth. And I suppose the journalist has had to pitch the piece. They've arrived with something in mind and they're trying to deliver it and they'll have a framework and they'll try and get you to fill in those blanks. But a good artist is going to be totally blank slate. Yeah, and journalists are after stories. Artists are not after stories 
It's a visual thing, it's an aesthetic thing rather than a story with a headline. Inspiration? Yeah. So which expeditions did you come on? It was part of the Five Deeps expedition, so we had this ship called Pressure Drop. And we were going around the world and each leg we would invite people on board. So we decided we wanted an artist. Alex had contacted me about a year before about ideas for painting. I emailed her one day and says, do you fancy coming to Tonga? And she did. She came down and we had a blast. It was brilliant. And so much so that a few months later, towards the end of it, we were up in the Arctic, up at 80 degrees north, and we invited her back for that. And was this the first time she'd been offshore? Yeah. Wow. It's the first time she did. I think she'd ever really hung around scientists. So I think her perspective on what we do and her perspective on where art and aesthetic plays a part in what we do is really, really fascinating. To get started, I would like to discuss a little bit about the subject matter in which you paint and draw and photograph and sketch. And that is because I think it's really interesting that you are not like normal artists who quite often just have a thing. You'd be a landscape artist or a portrait artist. In your collection over the last year, I see lots of fish paintings, portraits of people, engineering pieces of ships and submersibles, and the whole sort of deep sea environment thing. Is that a conscious thing that you've done? It's quite deliberate that I chose to be a portrait artist initially, and then approaching deep sea creatures like the abyssal grenadier, I related to it as an individual fish. As a, it sounds really peculiar but it's a portrait of an abyssal grenadier it's not a painting of a fish to me and I think that's kind of evolved now I see all fish and critters from the deep sea as some sort of emotional relationship with them so I think that came across there really they are portraits even though they're not people and then it's so epic being at sea and the people involved the seafaring life is completely different to anything I'd ever encountered and the range of people that are all pulling together. And the whole expedition in itself is so vast and adventurous. It feels very risky and something very historic. So I think that awe has fed into trying to embody more than just people and critters, but the vessels themselves take on their own personality. And it's evolved. And so obviously then I need to find quick ways of capturing those ideas. So sketches of photography have been have been perfect for that. It's funny you say that because I, I agree. I think back at all the ships I've worked on and there's some that I really love, like an old friend, and there's ones that I know I've never gotten on with. There's ones that I've disliked from, from the day I've stood on it and I can't explain why. There is a weird relationship you have with completely inanimate objects. But And again, the fish as well. You mentioned the curiosity there as well. I think the, the grenadier was a perfect example of that. They are unbelievably curious. Of all those different elements, do you have a particular favourite one? Is there a particular subject matter that you prefer to do? Well, before the Five Deeps expedition, I'd have said it's always been people. But the more I engaged with the fact that it's an expedition, the amount of science that's going into it, it's so much bigger. So I really want to paint, but you need so many different tools in order to capture the feeling and how epic it all is. Doing a bit of research, obviously, for, for this, this interview, and I went back to your website and had a look and reminded myself of all the stuff you've done. And what I like is on there, there's a mix of print and paint and sketches and photography. And Tom mentioned that he really liked your photography because we all know those bits and pieces that you photographed on the ship, even like door handle, sign steps, you know, the stuff that is instantly recognisable to us, but you, we would never have consciously thought of ever taking a picture of that. And for me, I, I thought looking through the work that you've presented, I really like it when you photograph your sketchbooks. In all that, is there a particular event that is the highlight for you? And is it a particular piece of work that you think really sums up your experience on there? There were so many brilliant events and they're really different. So sometimes having not travelled a lot and travelling literally across the globe and then seeing the vessel 
at the dock. I mean, fantastic moment that encompassed so many things, so much expectation and excitement. For me, seeing the stars that I'd never seen, Southern Hemisphere stars, that's a painting that I haven't yet made that I've stored up. I mean, there there are so many moments, but they aren't always about excitement. They aren't always about a dive or the science. And I think going back to how you mentioned about the, the photo sketchbooks, the reason they work is because some of those moments are really intimate. So I know that I've always got handrails in a lot of my photography because the handrail for me was the only thing separating me from this really deep ocean below me. That was quite interesting. It was also to give perspective. This wasn't just a picture of the sea from anywhere, from a bit of land, if you can only see the water. The point was it was aboard the pressure drop. So it's kind of making those ideas accessible to people there are so many. I mean, the glaciers up in the Arctic. I mean, it, my work has got to a point of progression, but it's got so much further to go. And there's so many more paintings to do. And in fact, the lino portraits, which they, they make it very accessible. You can see these epic characters that are playing out, whether it's a, a cook or an explorer or an engineer, they ultimately become a film poster. I thought it was really nice that you drew pretty much everybody on board. They worked pretty hard and they weren't obviously featured in the TV documentary. And whenever we have journalists on board, there's normally a very small subset of people that get interviewed. So I thought it was great to see portraits of of everybody. I thought it was a really nice thing to do. Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of crew members and people I've still got to sketch and create linos for. Because what is it? It's over 100 crew that are on rotation. So I won't be able to capture everybody. But I'm very aware of how the team only operates well because everybody's playing their part. What's next then? Because obviously Five Deeps has given you a taste of that. Is, is this subject matter something you see yourself doing for the immediate or long-term future? The science is really compelling. It's very interesting. And sometimes I have to remind myself not to go too far down the rabbit hole with science and try and keep the emotional aspect that I have with the experience. For instance, seeing your samples of giant isopods. I want to know so much about the isopods, but I don't want to know too much so that then I no longer see it as an artist. Uh, And I want to get that idea of the science and how exciting it is to see this phenomenally weird giant creature. I'd like to be able to convey that to the public and they don't get an opportunity to see that stuff. I love the idea of not explaining it because it ruins it. Like, that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, for me, I live inland. I've hardly ever been to sea and certainly not travelled a lot. And suddenly I'm seeing a giant ice pod, which to me looks like a giant woodlouse. And it's lovely and it reminds me of everything, my own sort of storytelling childhood. And it pays with all these other ideas. And I think art's got a really important role of bringing that magic and that connection to an audience. That's the nice bridge between science and the explaining a little bit about it, but not too much. And allowing someone to own the image, I suppose. I think that's absolutely fascinating. I think it's a really, really interesting take. I was thinking this recently because at the moment we're, we're currently writing up some of the data we got from the Mariana over the last five years or so, writing about the, the normal deep sea fauna you would expect to see there was historically we've known loads about bacteria in the bottom of the Mariana, molecular stuff, and we've known loads about geophysics and not much in between. 
you know, we start thinking about it like that. It's like, wow, there really is a gap in this. And then so what we're trying to do at the moment is try and fill in the, the sort of habitats as if you were walking around on that sort of scale rather than the scale of this thing. It's two and a half thousand kilometers long, trying to get that middle ground. Isn't it fascinating how vast it is? But I find it easier to envisage descriptions of space and universe and that sort of side of physics than to comprehend just how much space is filled with water and pressure in the mm. oceans and in these trenches. Just the sheer scale of this habitat is a bit staggering. And I think a lot of those issues come back to the a sort of anthropocentric thing whereby if you're trying to rationalise Mount Everest, you can see a picture of Mount Everest and go, there it is. Yes. Or even better, you can go there and stand there and look up and go, there it is. And all that information goes to the holes in your skull and says, right, I get that now. Or you go to the Grand Canyon and stand there and go, wow, that is huge. The problem with underwater is you can't see it. If all the information you get about, let's say, the Mariana Trench is in an abstract form. It's acoustic bathymetry, which has been colorized and vertically exaggerated and then given to you digitally or on a piece of paper and said, that's what the Mariana Trench looks like. No one has ever stood and looked at the Mariana Trench because you can't. I think that makes it much harder to then visualize. And also the, the sheer size of the Pacific Ocean. I mean, if you turn the globe to the Pacific, it's pretty much half the planet is Pacific Ocean. So you can never truly see that unless maybe if you're on the International Space station you might get a feel for just how huge it is but i think it's to do with it's a problem of scale and access but i, I must say it's remarkable how much five deeps how much that was able to achieve in terms of traversing it i really enjoyed it when uh, you showed me some footage and I, I think it was the java trench and there was the dumbo and no one had ever seen it that deep eight thousand meters or i don't know seven thousand meters yeah which that's phenomenal. I've always been not such a big fan of submersibles, partly because they're very, very expensive uh, and, and there's hardly any of them. I don't think they're the solution to the world's ocean problems. I think ROVs, you get more data, if you like. But there was always this argument about and there's not quite like actually being in it and seeing it with your own eyes. And, and there is actually a real element of that, which is hard to describe. Because when you're on the surface, you can see the, the wash and the bubbles and then suddenly you just start to sink. You can actually watch the sunlight disappear. And it's very quick. And then it's particularly Mariana Dive. You sat in that for three hours before it hit the bottom. When you finally get to the bottom, there's a sense that you've just walked in on somebody. Because there's <laughs> a, like an animal there just doing what it was doing on a Tuesday afternoon. And you don't get that from the landers when you bring it back and you download the video and then you, you see what you get. But from peering through the hole, it was, it's kind of personal. Funny enough, that's one of the things that makes the art that I'm creating now different to where I was 18 months ago because I I always struggle with using other people's photographs I don't have permission so I like to take my own photos and yet I know that I can't take imagery from the deep sea with my own camera and my own eyes and I really struggled with ROV images because I couldn't imagine what it would be like to go down to those depths and as soon as you have someone telling their story, like you just have, about what it's like to travel down, losing that light spectrum and, and seeing creatures in their own habitat, then when I'm now looking at your footage or photographs, I can see your experience of it. I can imagine myself looking in that way. And so then I can engage with the photo and I can turn it into a piece of artwork. We often talk about the things that get us really excited about seeing something for the first time. I don't know about it and that's why it's exciting and that's why it's a surprise. You're not painting a perfect taxonomic representation of the animal. You are painting your first emotional response to seeing that thing for the first time. And that, we could poison that by telling you, and this works like that, and this works like that, and you find these at these depths and they feed on this. 
give yourself a moment to just take it in as it is. Yeah. You should look up phenomenology. Phenomenology is an area of philosophy which is about sense of awe. And this goes back to what I was saying about you can look at Mount Everest. There's absolutely no rational reason why you should like that. It gives you nothing in terms of resources or safety or whatever it may be. But you like it. You look at it and you go, oh, yeah, look at that. And it's that little feeling of awe, phenomenological response, if you like. But you can't get that underwater because you can't stand there on the edge of the Mariana and go, look at the size of that. That's another sort of psychological barrier between how much people really love terrestrial landscapes and deserts and rainforests because you can see it and you get that gut feeling. But everything underwater is just, it's buried. This was kind of came out of Tom's head. This whole thing about the only way you can ever meet your deep sea fish is as if one of you were dead. Now, if you think about when kids go to an aquarium, you can go into an aquarium and you can see a fish swimming around doing stuff. You can go down the beach or whatever and rivers and stuff and you can see animals that are alive and you get, once again, that sense of ownership or intimacy or, or sense of awe that you really like this animal. But then the problem with deep water animals, there's only two ways to see them. One is digitally by video or stills or whatever it may be. And the other is when they're bleached, pale, the eyes popping out, sat in a jar of ethanol, which doesn't make anybody look good. I think that's the fantastic thing about the sub, you see, because you've put people there. In the same way as you watch a film and you can identify with characters, you can relate to part of the storyline, even though that's completely detached from your reality. As soon as you put other people in submersible, I think you can start to relate to those digital images then I think it does become more accessible. Brilliant. Thanks very much. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. I think what you've said so far has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. I think that was so useful. It's totally shifted my way of looking at these things. When people interview me and ask about, you know, what's the most exciting part of the job, it's that we go to new places. We know there's a very good chance we're going to see something for the first time. And why do I want to take that away then? Let people have that sense of discovery and that sense of like, I've got no idea what this is and why it looks like that. I do think science education is important, outreach, and but yeah, let's give people a moment to really drink all that in and to see things the way that Alex does and then sidle up to them as we can see them enjoying a piece of art and just say, do you know why they have those bottles? <laughs> So if you think about the way in which scientists approach the deep sea in a highly objective way, like what Alex was talking about, the layperson, I guess, is more likely to develop different perspectives based on alternative sources, sort of media type of stuff. And that can be quite highly skewed from the perspective of scientists. Let's say, for example, talking about deep sea animals, and they automatically think of these pelagic ones. There, you're entering into a difficult question which gets asked often at conferences, is why don't people care about deep sea? And that comes down to something called axiology, which is the sort of relationship between aesthetic and ethics. But if you take away the monetary value, right? Let's say the money is not involved in this. What is it about the deep sea that can give you that you care about? And that's aesthetic. It's whether you like it or not. And axiology is about how much the aesthetics of something influences your ethics. So if it's full of weird monsters and or it's a lifeless, barren nothingness sitting in the bottom of the planet, that is going to affect your ethics. You're not going to sit there and go, right, that's just it. I, I want to protect the entire episode playing the Pacific Ocean because these horrible little fang-toothed monster things that want to eat the eyes out of my skull are really important. And I guess this is why some of the big terrestrial animals get a lot of attention because people look at them and think, oh, that's lovely. But as soon as you go in the water, you start going down and you end up thinking, okay, these are not things that the normal people care about. Although I know there are weird people who do care about them. So yeah, there's some people who really engage with the monsters, but they seem to be a minority. But when we publish some of our stuff online, one of the top comments is, I'm never going in the sea again. 
It's fear. Yes. Because that's what's underpinning all of this is the fear of the dark and the fear of deep water, which is an archetypal fear, which makes a lot of sense when you think that we are visually orientated air-breathing monkeys. Anyway, so you had something similar recently about that classic blobfish photograph that I think it's something you need to get off your chest. Yeah, the injustice, the bullying. It, it sort of stems from you talking about charismatic animals, your leopards and your pandas and things like that. They, they immediately gather public support. So there was a campaign started by Simon Watt, who who's a biologist who presents a lot on, on conservation. And back in 2013, he had a world's ugliest animal competition. And the whole point of it was to raise awareness for the animals that are harder to protect because people don't engage with them so much. And often these animals are the ecosystem foundation. If the giant pandas disappear, as tragic as that would be, the giant pandas would disappear. But if you remove some of these ugly animals, they're, they're the foundation of whole ecosystems and the whole thing comes tumbling down. So I really like what Simon was doing. But the, the winner of that campaign was the blobfish. Uh, this was back in 2013. And you can all visualize that classic image. It's sort of pink, it's really deflated and sad looking. Actually, that image was taken by some friends of ours, and then that sort of went viral, and I've, I've seen it all over the internet. Question is, Tom, how representative is that photo of the blobfish? Well, this is where I get upset. So the blobfish, not super deep sea, about 2,000 meters, you find them off New Zealand, which is where that original photo was taken. They're a low energy fish, and they don't have a swim bladder, so they don't have that internal balloon that allows them to maintain their buoyancy in the water. So what they've done, is they've reduced all the hard parts of their body, they've reduced their bones, and they've filled their body with a gel. It's roughly neutral in water. So that's all fine when you're a deep sea animal because the water supports it in life. The issue is then, when you bring that animal to us, it ends up looking very different. A, a fair comparison would be if you took me, captured me in a bag, pulled me up in this mesh bag into space, dragged me across the surface of the moon, and then you put me in five times my normal gravity, and I was damaged, deflated, and collapsing under these extreme conditions that I, my body never evolved to cope with, and then took a picture of that and say, like, oh, human beings are gross, aren't they? They're terrible. These animals are incredibly fragile, and, and trawling does quite a lot of damage. The whole reason the blobfish is pink is because its skin has been rubbed off. In, in life, they're sort of a, a dusky olive green almost. And we took some pictures of blobfish, again, off New Zealand. It is not done justice by that image. And that feeds back into how we know and how we interact with deep sea fish, because as Alan mentioned in that interview, a lot of them are pickled in, in jars, maybe from the expeditions of 50 to 70 years ago, and they've been damaged by the trawling process. They've had explosive decompression, and then because they have such fluid-filled bodies, such low-density bodies, when you preserve them in formalin or alcohol, all that's pulled out, and so they shrivel and they become far more disgusting in the very pure sense of the term, but also distorted. It's not the animal as it exists in life. But one of the point we're trying to make is, because it's a deep-sea animal, nobody questions it. You just see this animal which has been absolutely butchered and go, look how ugly this thing is. And everyone goes, wow, that's exactly what I want. I want to think that that's what's lurking in the bottom of the sea. And don't recall anyone ever going, hold on, that doesn't look right. That looks like it's melting on a table. And so, of course, it's melting on a table. But funnily enough, it hasn't evolved to adapt to the environmental conditions of a table. It sits along line our preconceived notions of what deep sea animals look like more than it does anything else. And I think, interestingly, they're preconceived because we've only been getting cameras down there relatively recently. I think Monster Camera was the first one in the late 60s, early 70s that actually got footage of deep sea fish in life. And so that was our understanding, was these damaged specimens that had been preserved in alcohol from the big global expeditions, you know, the Challenger, the Galathea expeditions. That was all we knew of deep sea animals. And so that's not been updated yet because it turned out that sold newspapers. The monstrous sort of damaged view that we used to have of these animals is now their brand. And so there's almost a reluctance to move away from them. 
And that concludes this pressurized version of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to go into some more detail, you can find the full episode in the feed. Just match the episode numbers. We'll deep see you next time, and I abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone.